the right looked for, what is a sub-demographic of our population they could pick on that not a lot of people have proximity to, and we're going to start to then tell you falsehoods about them. We're going to scare you that they're 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 the ones who it's you know your problems are their fault, and we're going to then just keep harping away on it. I'm Sarah Grass, and this is season one of Hearsay from the Sidelines, a show about the place where law, sports, and culture intersect. Brought to you by Culture and Sports and Seton Hall Law School's Gaming, Hospitality, Entertainment, and Sports Law Program. This is episode seven, Strange Bedfellows. unique challenges the issue of trans inclusion in youth sports presents are the unlikely coalitions that have formed in support of exclusion. I've already given a lot of attention to one of these organizations, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and I want to start today by telling you a bit more about the ADF, or the Alliance, as they may be called. They are, according to their own website, one of the leading Christian law firms committed to protecting religious freedom, free speech, marriage and family, parental rights, and the sanctity of life. They're a nonprofit organization founded in 1994 who, quote, seek to provide everyone's First Amendment freedoms. This sounds relatively benign on the surface, just a group of like-minded Christian lawyers protecting freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Conservative or fundamentalist legal uh, issues, right? They, they would probably say that they were the conservative ACLU but the power of the ACLU in some measure is that they're neither liberal or conservative, they're rights oriented uh, and for expanded civil rights in most cases. Uh, the, this group is is clearly cause oriented and that's one of the reasons why they've ended up on, on a list of, of hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center. That was Professor Bob Boland. We talked at length about the ADF and how they appear to be using legislatures and courts to advance their causes. But what exactly are those causes? From its earliest days, ADF founders have openly and vigorously opposed civil rights protection for LGBTQ people. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, this included defending the right of the Boy Scouts of America to ban gay members and leaders. Alan Sears, who was ADF president until January 2017, co-wrote a book with ADF colleague Craig Austin called The Homosexual Agenda, Exposing the Principal Threat to Religious Freedom Today, which explicitly and inaccurately linked homosexuality and pedophilia. The ADF has litigated challenges to state anti-discrimination statutes that require businesses to provide services without discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. This includes the recent 303 creative case and the masterpiece cake shop cases. The ADF openly opposes reproductive freedom, helping to both draft and defend Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, which was upheld by the Supreme Court in the historic reversal of Roe v. Wade in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. They represented a pharmacy who challenged a federal mandate requiring pharmacies who serve patients with Medicare, Medicaid, or other federally funded health coverage to stock and dispense prescription birth control and emergency contraceptives, 
even if the use of such medications is inconsistent with the pharmacist's religious beliefs. They represent a group of doctors and medical groups challenging the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone, one of two drugs used to terminate early pregnancies, and later agency actions relating to the availability of the drug in an ongoing case which will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in upcoming months. And most relevant to this show, the ADF is waging a decade-long war against trans people. In addition to the youth sports cases I've already mentioned, Seoul and Hecox, they defended a Christian women's shelter who was found to have violated the Anchorage Municipal Code by denying services to a transgender woman in crisis because she was biologically male. They sent letters to school districts in 2014 informing them that, quote, no federal law requires public schools to open restrooms, showers, and changing areas to opposite-sex students, and that providing such access violates the fundamental rights of students and parents. I could keep going for a very, very long time, but I don't think that's necessary. Paul Southwick, a lawyer who participated in ADF's summer internship program before coming out as gay and leaving the organization, said it best in an interview with Rolling Stone, quote, they believe that Christianity will always trump human rights. It doesn't matter how many gay people kill themselves. It doesn't matter how many trans people are beat up or brutalized. Given this ideology, it has really been a struggle for me to understand how an organization like the Women's Sports Policy Working Group, whose leadership includes prominent civil rights advocates Martina Navratilova, Nancy Hogshead Makar, and Renee Richards, have aligned themselves with the ADF on this issue of trans athlete inclusion. But I suppose it's not any more jarring than seeing them listed alongside the Women's Liberation Front on the webpage of the Independent Council on Women's Sports. For those unfamiliar with the Women's Liberation Front, they are a nonpartisan radical feminist organization that advocates for the total liberation of women and girls from patriarchal systems. Among their areas of focus are reproductive autonomy, they unapologetically support abortion on demand, and support of the needs of lesbians and bisexual women. However, in their distorted version of second wave feminism, trans women are not included under their umbrella. They're what we've probably all heard referred to in the media recently as TERFs, trans-exclusionary feminists. In fact, not only does Wolf support efforts to restrict access to single-sex spaces and activities based on sex assigned at birth, including prisons where transgender women in men's facilities experience alarmingly high rates of physical and sexual assault, they have publicly opposed regulatory measures to improve access to gender-affirming care for participants in public health programs. So what has happened is that opposition to trans inclusion in sports is being propped up from these various interest groups that are in many respects ideologically in conflict. But rather than diluting their credibility, this has somehow made the issue harder to combat for advocates. Shira Berkowitz, a senior director of public policy and advocacy at Promo, described the broad spectrum of opposition perspectives. I think that it's, I mean, it's it's been a 40-year, very slow and intentional um, opposition creep that has been able to create um, the argument around who transgender people are without transgender individuals being able to set the tone and um, the narrative for themselves. Um, so like, what we're fighting against in these past three years is years in the making of um, our opposition claiming that transgender people are unwell, 
Um, they have uh, mental health issues. They, they don't know who they are or what's best for them. And therefore, there needs to be laws to make sure that however they seem to thrive as adults um, isn't due to irreversible changes. Um, and I think there's just a fear around, it, it's a religious argument. It's a fear around like, this is not how our God made you or you should be. And that has been um, a drive nationally over the past like century, but even more um, of prioritizing the religious voice over one specific religious voice over any other voices um, or experiences. So I think that's like the foundation that we're playing against. And um, it, we go back to the bathroom bills, the bathroom bans, when we talk about why we're losing um, our rights and being able to participate in sports. And it's one, that narrative that locker rooms are not safe, that if you don't, you have more than one gender in any locker room, that there's going to be um, abuse or harassment that is cultivated because of that permissiveness, which is simply untrue. Um, but there's that unknown of, of like, could that be happening in my school with my kid? Um, well, we don't want that. So there's, there's that argument that we never quite let slip away. Um, and then it goes like, it's right in sync, this uh, oppositional argument with the the equality that we fight for in women's sports, uh, which is not, it does not have such a deep history um, beyond gaining that equality. And we're still fighting for so many equalities um, just in women's sports to separate from men's competition. Um, so the argument that there are only two genders, that there is men's sports and there's women's sports, and you have to choose one and you have to play on one based off of how you're assigned at birth, um, is threatening, or it feels threatening to um, cisgendered women who have fought so hard for their own space to play in their own competition, and for families who have fought for that space for their daughters. Um, and it comes at like truly there's just misalignment or misunderstanding of what it means to be transgender because a transgender woman is a woman and a transgender man is a man. And by not believing that or not believing people who, who know intrinsically who they are, um, we're creating a division even further um, in the idea of what is equality in sports. I spoke with Professor Aaron Bazuvis about the convergence of these ideologically incompatible groups at this particular moment in history. Specifically, I was interested to know whether, for her as a scholar who has been writing on gender and sports and trans inclusion for decades, she could point to a particular moment or instigating event that forced this issue to the fore for so many special interests. Uh, a, a, a moment or or time that can be, uh, you know, like a, a demarcation uh, between before and after. I mean, I would say uh, to some extent, uh, to to some extent, no. Like because there has always been some feminist basis for objecting to trans women included in women's sports since Renee Richards. In the U.S. sued the U.S. Open in 1977. 
um, and and successfully and was able to compete on the women's tour after that. Um, so I don't I don't want to uh, risk oversimplifying this history here and saying that we were all on one side of this issue um, until the you know early 2020s when you know issues uh, politically started to change. So there has always been that um, that ideological conflict. Um, that said, there is a noticeably different scale and magnitude in this conversation since the Trump administration and some things that were going on there, in particular, how the Trump administration was applying Title IX against the Athletic Association in Connecticut, which had a which has a very inclusive policy, allows trans girls to compete um, on the basis of their gender identity being bona fide female without requiring any kind of particular physical trans or medical transition milestones. Um, and by the way, uh, many states up until, um, up until the sort of recent backlash um, have had inclusive policies at one point the majority of states permitted trans athletes to compete. Some of them used uh, a hormone requirement um, similar to like similar to the NCAA's former policy of having one year of hormone treatment. But there were um, many states, uh, at least a dozen states that had policies like Connecticut's, Massachusetts, uh, California, um, that permitted gender identity-based participation without any restrictions. So one of those states is Connecticut. And in Connecticut, we, ha we, we happen to see um, two highly successful trans girl athletes competing in track and field at around the same time. Um, and so even though these statewide, these inclusive statewide policies go back to the first one promulgated in 2006, right? So plenty of trans kids have had the opportunity to compete for, for many years in a, in a variety, almost all, uh, or a majority of states and going back in some states as far as 2006, you know, at some point you're going to get some who are really good and not withstanding the fact that they're also happen to be trans. They happen to be both good athletes and trans. Um, those two things came together for two particular athletes in a small state. And because also because that was an era of political opposition to trans rights and an administration that could use its opposition to trans rights to garner political support from its base, um, we saw Title IX um, attempted to be applied to squash Connecticut's inclusive policy. So because of because that was so high profile, because that was so political, um, I think it really um, amplified the conversation in this regard. Um, I think it's not, um, you know, and to bring it back to the clash between um, uh, 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 between you know different versions of feminist ideology, um, you know, that is also around the same time when we started to see much more formally that division playing out in the public sphere. Aaron is referring here to the Soul v. Connecticut case that I cover in episode two. I want to talk more about something she mentions, that this case was the product of an era where opposition to trans rights was politically beneficial. This, I think, is the forest that so many people miss while they are focused on the trees. Selena Soul and her co-plaintiffs were chosen 
by the Alliance Defending Freedom to be the face of a case that is part of a much larger plan, as Bob Boland and I discussed. To think about that the, that the three women who ultimately became plaintiffs now and then added a fourth were, were really being sought out as class representatives more than maybe their own organic perception drove them to this. They were, they were picked and selected, as far as I know, to maintain a lawsuit. And a lot of times, it's not unusual in class action lawsuits, we always look for a representative who's willing to put their name on the suit and be represented. That they were willing to do this certainly certainly says a lot says something about them, but it also says something about why this group was doing this and why they were doing it in Connecticut, uh, which was unique. I think the, the the short answer why they were doing it in Connecticut is that Connecticut's association had adopted a fairly progressive policy on gender identity, um, and 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 was enforcing it several years earlier. And I think the second reason, and maybe a more practical one legally, if they could get a win in the courts in the Second Circuit, that would probably set the tone across the country. The Second Circuit's one of the more liberal uh, circuits in the country, and I think they thought this would would help propel their argument forward, or they would find a series of reasoning that would be allow them to argue a split in circuits down the road and get to the Supreme Court with jurisdiction. So it was, from a legal standpoint, this was very much a test case, and it was one to take on an association that didn't have purely state standing. This is as good a time as any to give a little update on the Soul case, which, as you may recall, was in limbo pending a decision by an en banc Second Circuit Court. That decision was issued on December 15th, 2023, after my last episode was recorded. As Bob and I talked about in episode two, the original Second Circuit Court of Appeals decision addressed whether the plaintiffs had standing to sue as parties who suffered a redressable actual injury and whether Title IX even allows this type of private cause of action. On the question of actual injury, the federal trial court opinion, which the Second Circuit affirmed initially, was no. There was no injury, in fact, because whether the plaintiffs had suffered any real harm was purely speculative. The en banc court disagreed. They reasoned that records showed plaintiffs would have certainly won placements and titles if the trans athletes had not competed. They did not consider or address the point that I raised in that episode, which is that there really is no way to know how the races would have turned out had Terry and Andrea not been running, particularly with times clustered so closely together. The en banc court also held that the alteration of the records that plaintiffs requested as relief would, in some fashion, remedy the harm they alleged to have suffered. The panel rejected the argument that such a change has no real value, stating, quote, that one may not deem them valuable is simply not the relevant inquiry for standing purposes, just as an award of nominal damages partially, even if nominally, remedies the violation of a legal right, injunctive relief can partially, even if nominally, remedy the existing harms that flow from the past denial of equal opportunity, end quote. I do want to highlight, as the court does, that the fact that a plaintiff has standing to pursue her claim 
does not mean that she is entitled to the relief she seeks. As to the second part of the question, whether a claim for damages under Title IX can be made against a party who had no reason to believe their actions violated the law, the en banc panel simply did not take a position. They remanded the case back to the district court to first decide the case on the merits, which is, did the CIAC eligibility policy allowing trans athletes to compete on single-gender teams consonant with their gender identity violate Title IX, then suggested they address the question of notice after or along with that decision. So would you call this a victory? The Alliance certainly does. And that can be hard to understand, since they still haven't even gotten to the real issue. But that isn't all they care about. I, I think for I think for the alliance, and obviously again wildly speculating, it is to call attention to this issue. It is to motivate people to follow or who who follow that to draw them closer and to make this battle a public one. This is an important forum for them, even though it's a very small forum. I I, I think of it as a very small issue in sport. Uh, I'll give you, this, is, this may be, a, again, a slight digression, but I think there's a very similar issue. In the, back in the 1990s, a golfer by the name of Casey Martin, who had, a, who had a congenital leg issue, but was a collegiate champion, sued the PGA, of Amer- PGA to get on the golf tour, which he had qualified for, and then asked for an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Golf Association, then as now, uh, rather than embracing Martin and saying, aren't you a nice young man and are, isn't it great that you, you're, you're doing this and wouldn't this expand the people who played golf, immediately attacked him and said, no, it would destroy golf as we know it. The court, the Supreme Court ultimately on a 7-2 decision ruled that, that, the, that the issue of a cart or carrying your own bags, and Martin's chief, chief claim was that he couldn't carry his bags, was really immaterial to, to golf. It wasn't a time game. It wasn't an endurance competition. Professional golfers smoked while playing. Uh, golfers on the weekend drink while playing. It wasn't part of the sport. It, it, but it was such a small case, and the reaction of, of golf uh, was so was so extreme that it became such a, a, a social issue. And I think it helped. I think it helped to a degree fundamentally create acceptance for the Americans with Disabilities Act, an important idea. Ultimately, Casey Martin went on the tour, won no, won no tournaments, and, and was, was, was universally attacked for this. To some degree, I think this is a parallel for what the, what the alliance in this case is doing. They're trying to create the maximum attention, the maximum fear, and the maximum sense that the institutions they hold dear, that we all hold dear, the most, the most important of those being gender is under a great assault in sports, which it isn't. And the plaintiffs who are people who might place a couple of places higher, but for certain participation are, are the ones who are being hurt and stepping into this. So we need to protect them, i.e. we're protecting women. The fact that they're using an anti-discrimination statute, Title IX, to do that I find particularly interesting and maybe a little bit tragic. It's provided an uproar in states that are more conservative leaning that this is an important social issue. Um, it, at least in sport, 
it's affecting a very small number of athletes. We're talking about two in Connecticut. We're talking about small numbers in, across the United States of athletes who might be affected by this. Yet it's such a prominent issue in the political agenda and talk of the day. Yeah, and I, you know, I also see it as an opportunity for the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, to continue to kind of put out into the court record um, a rhetoric about transgender people in general, right? Like through the misgendering of the athletes involved, continuously referring to them as males, boys, etc., and making this sort of essentialist biological argument about, you know, the athletic supremacy or the physical supremacy of biological males over biological females that serves a broader agenda. And it's not even really about these female athletes. Well, it has very little to do with them, unfortunately. You are you are getting you are getting that rhetoric in the in this the this chain of cases. And, and and then and then the react this kind of horrified reaction to it that that it's it's that it's gutting Title IX, it's destroying women's sports, it, that that practically can't be further from the truth. Uh, at least in the place that I look at more carefully, in collegiate sports, women's sports enjoyed one of their most successful seasons back after after COVID. Women's basketball that had had sort of not increase viewership and not had compelling matchups, had one of its most compelling matchups. If we look at, at name, image, and likeness earnings for female athletes, at least one female athlete may be the highest earner in all of college athletics in terms of NIL. And, and she's a woman's gymnast from, uh, from LSU who, who, will, who will work very hard at it as opposed to using a high level of status to, to, to take advantage of those opportunities. Earning, we, we estimate about three to $5 million uh, per year in the first year or so of NIL, including the opportunities to put women on TV in, in different ways. So if we look at the marketplace reaction to these cases and, and a death of women's sports, we're seeing just the opposite in the marketplace. If you think we sound like conspiracy theorists, I assure you, we aren't. In the early 1990s, former ADF President Alan Sears pitched a strategy to donors modeled after the Black Civil Rights Movement. Quote, like the NAACP, ADF would find sympathetic and strategically placed plaintiffs, then seek conflicting rulings from different circuits in order to push the Supreme Court to take up a question. Along the way, ADF would try to erode precedents that it opposed, for example, by supporting parental notification requirements for minors seeking abortions. End quote. This playbook is clearly still in use. According to David Kirkpatrick's reporting for The New Yorker, ADF staff in Washington are pushing for legislation that would make it easier to sue school districts for alleged violations of parental rights. Its lawyers have brought parental rights cases both in appellate circuits that lean left and in others that lean right, increasing the chance that a split will compel the Supreme Court to take up the issue. Recent profiles of the Alliance describe organized, deliberate campaigns against pronoun policies, anti-discrimination statutes, abortion laws, and gender-affirming care that start with model legislation pitched to state legislators, backed by litigation support, to defend them when they are challenged. Recent profiles of the Alliance describe organized, deliberate campaigns 
against pronoun policies, anti-discrimination statutes, abortion laws, and gender-affirming care. They start with model legislation pitched to state legislators. Then they back those up with litigation support to defend the laws when they are challenged. With the donations of wealthy donors, like the family of Hobby Lobby founder David Green, the Alliance has amassed over 4,900 lawyers and annual revenue of over $50 million. This money funds not only costly court battles, but active solicitation of plaintiffs through bulletins urging churches and ministries to be on the lookout for SOGIs. Those are prohibitions of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. There's even a toll-free number, 1-800-TELL-ADF, for victims of the liberal agenda to request legal assistance. This large financial reserve means the ADF can be incredibly strategic in its legal campaigns. A Washington Post investigation of plaintiffs whose right to refuse to photograph gay weddings was defended by the ADF in the years leading up to the recent 303 creative case raised questions about whether those claims were actually manufactured. Not only did ADF lawyers draft the incorporation paperwork and company policies that were later used as the basis for these lawsuits, but after the filing of the suits, the majority of these plaintiffs simply stopped photographing weddings altogether. Bob and I joked about the fact that Lori Smith, the web designer who was the plaintiff in the 303 creative case, had never in fact been asked to design a wedding website for a same-sex couple. It was simply the possibility that she might be asked to do so that formed the basis of her claim. But there's a darker side to this. Once you find out she was actually approached by her pastor and told to contact the ADF, before she even started making wedding websites, as she told a reporter for The New Yorker. Okay, but what does all of this have to do with the Women's Sports Policy Working Group, the Women's Liberation Front, and all the other groups and individuals advocating for the exclusion of trans kids from playing on single-sex teams that align with their gender identity? Well, here's how this all plays out and connects in my mind. I don't think the members of the Women's Sports Policy Working Group or many of their supporters are explicitly anti-queer or anti-trans. Martina Navratilova has publicly identified as queer for more than 40 years and has been a longtime advocate for gay rights issues, including same-sex marriage. Renee Richards is a transgender woman who took her battle to compete as a woman in the U.S. Open to court and won. One of my favorite podcast hosts, Sarah Marshall, dedicated an entire episode of her show, You're Wrong About, to exploring Renee's history as a trans person and her current views on trans athletes with Sports Illustrated writer Julie Kliebman. Anyone interested in learning more about Renee should check it out. But their public statements and the information provided by their organization fuel anti-trans narratives and support the ADF's broader anti-trans campaign. For example, the Women's Sports Policy Working Group has a header tab on their webpage titled Male Victories. At the very top of that page, it reads 273 male victories in female sports with an asterisk next to males clarifying this means males who identify as trans or trans women. The purpose of compiling this list, it goes on to state, is to counter the argument that there are so few trans women and girls competing in sports. It's followed by a pink box purporting to tally all of the losses suffered by girls as a result of Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood competing in Connecticut. This information comes directly from the plaintiff's court filings in the Solvey Connecticut case. The list of 273 male victories includes a wide range of sports, 
some rather obscure, like billiards, darts, dodgeball, and park running, across multiple countries and periods of years. And frankly, it does nothing to convince me that women and girls are suffering significant harms as a result of trans inclusion. If anything, the fact that they could only compile 273 examples suggests the opposite. Navratilova and Hogshead Makar's identities as internationally known athletes, however, gives legitimacy to the legislation and legal actions sponsored by a conservative Christian organization that paradoxically doesn't really care about women's sports. Their endgame is to eradicate trans people from participating in public life. When arguments about fairness and gender equity are offered by figures assumed to be unbiased, informed, and rational, even when their information originates from sources we should be highly skeptical of, the issue of inclusion in sports slips from black and white into the gray, even for members of the LGBTQIA community. This is what advocates see as distinguishing the issue of inclusion in sports from other trans issues like bans on gender affirming care. 100 percent um it's i would not say that it's like easy to mobilize um anyone around um anti-trans legislation um who isn't directly impacted but the idea of can our government permit or exclude healthcare for some and not others is a universal argument um this issue piggybacking on um, the pandemic with vaccine mandates and school mask requirements fits really well into that argument of like, this is like, why should the government limit healthcare or why should they have a state in what um, medical associations and um, boards and licensure providers can do or cannot do? Like, why would the state know better? Um, and when it comes to sports um i think there's one a misconception that like every child is an aggressive competitive going to be college athlete whereas we forget that sports are the place where um young kids learn sportsmanship and how to be a teammate and how to be a leader or eye hand coordination like all of the very simple basic like very necessary community skills we gain um are are not about winning or losing. Um, they're they're just about being a, a part of a community or being a part of a group of individuals, um, and so like therefore it's it's not really an easy argument to mobilize around. Um, I would say the same goes for um, we haven't figured out as a as a movement the messaging that resonates with people that is inclusive or encompassing of yes and women's sports and yes and equality in women's sports um and because of that we lose a whole lot of individuals who are very like oh absolutely pro trans rights and believe in the existence and the humanity of trans people but when it encroaches on the equality in what they've fought for for so long, we lose them along that way. Our trans athletes are, are very invisible. Um, they don't want to be on the front lines of this because they want to continue playing their sport. They want to be a middle schooler or a high schooler and 
uh, run cross country or play baseball without being scrutinized for whatever gender they were assigned at birth. Um, and so we don't have a really large comrade of individuals coming together to fight against um, the right to participate in sports for transgender individuals. Um, and we don't have a youth voice around it, not just in our state, I think in many, many states. Um, we're lucky that we have professional athlete voice around it. Um, but in order to thrive and keep your childhood, it's too dangerous to speak out or to say that you're might not be exactly who you are to all of your peers and all of your coaches and et cetera. Um, so it's an, it's an incredibly like multi-level issue to organize around um, and to speak out against and to find it so like important and crucial and pivotal of a conversation. Um, and it, all of that is always going on in the background of these healthcare bans are also accelerating very, very fast through legislatures. And there's almost this like, well, what's what's more dangerous? What's going to lose more lives? What is going to, um, what like, where do we have to give up our, our fight if our voice is smaller? And that it's like such an incorrect platter to be dealt. Like, like it, this is just as quality of life, whether or not there's access to sports or activities that there is also to healthcare. Here, Shira raises another issue. The multiple offenses levied against trans people, specifically kids, puts the organizations that advocate for them in a difficult position. Most of them are not the ADF. They don't have $50 million or 4,900 lawyers and they're forced to figure out how to prioritize their political, human, and economic capital to fight these issues like parental notification laws, bans on gender-affirming care, and athletic participation all at once, as was the case for the organization Shira represents in Missouri. Um, so like, we do have two different sets of bills, and I would argue that the um, transgender healthcare bans are a bit more dangerous than whether or not transgender youth can play sports. Um, and so our, our focus as an organization have been so like highly prioritizing, making sure that everyone has access to healthcare. Um, and it, I wouldn't say that it slipped through the cracks at all. I would say that we, we fought and um, the negotiation at the end of the, um, argument was that if a sports ban is going to have to pass um, and, a lot, and the politicians could not agree on the reasoning of, of why this is necessary legislation, um, that we needed to put a sunset on any type of legislation that passed under that vein of like, we don't know what the real problem is, but we need to do something about it. Um, didn't fly for, our organization doesn't fly for any LGBTQ um, rights organizations. So we do have this really incredibly egregious sports ban that bans transgender youth from the time they are five years old, all the way up through their college careers from being able to participate in sports. And the silver lining is that it will be sunset in four years. Um, not that they, not that our legislature might not, go, well, like, 
they could easily go back and like make it worse or remove that sunset or say like we found the solution to this problem and it's this bill so transgender athletes can never play sports um but for right now uh we have four years to fight to get it to to completely go away and and not be a part of our law and while it might be easy for some to say this is just sports it's not work it's not school this isn't about the erosion of civil rights, I think that's naive. One of the biggest factors in ending the subjugation of any marginalized group is the empathy and familiarity developed through proximity. But as Kurt Weaver and I discussed, limiting the places where trans people, particularly kids, can exist and live safely as their true selves impedes this. It's, I mean, it is infuriating, right? It's, it's infuriating in time when you see any group of individuals being picked on, right? So I think that's, that's the basis of this, which I can't believe that um, this is where we are right now. But to have a, any group of individuals being picked on who was sometimes the least of us and, you know, the, the fewest numbers that are involved in that, in that organization. I think what's been interesting to me is to see the, the right using this as a wedge issue is such an interesting thing in that they found a group that lacks proximity. So if you look at some of the issues that the Native American population in the U.S. had in the past and indigenous populations across U.S. and Canada, some of the challenges they had was proximity to the rest of the population, which is why policies were allowed to kind of float through because there's a lack of understanding of who those people were, culture, food, everything about them. And so, of course, well, it's easy to say those over there are different and I don't know any of them. And so I'm going to treat them differently. And I think right now the right looked for what is a sub-demographic of our population, they could pick on that not a lot of people have proximity to, and we're going to start to then tell you falsehoods about them. We're going to scare you that they're 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 the ones who it's you know your problems are their fault, and we're going to then just keep harping away on it. And so we had a proximity issue right now around the trans community, where I have lots of trans friends because I live in a city and I live in a place that welcomes that, and I actively go out and you know and open myself to that. But many people that I know do not have that proximity, and hence a lack of understanding. My parents would be to those individuals. And so I think having that as a basis, you get to see why when someone says, oh, well, I heard this. Isn't that true? And you say, you cannot believe this, but they just don't know anyone to ask the question to or to see that's not true. Um, they believe the news when they say, hey, listen, it's not in your state. It's some state over there where a boy dressed up as a girl and want to track me. And it's it's just simply not the case. It's simply not true. Um I would relate to the kids in uh, or schools putting kitty litter boxes in schools. Again, it's it's a completely not true story that gets told that just because in a state over there, we're going to believe it. And I think that's where I'm I'm disappointed in us that we don't have the critical thinking enough to understand that. But again, I I don't I won't live in in the utopia and and put my head in the ground about this. I'm going to simply work the issue, and I think that's where whether it be bringing proximity and for us in current times. Proximity comes through your phone sometimes. It comes through identity adoption, comes through social media, comes through education. And we're going to do all those things we can to make sure proximity is brought, if not physical proximity can happen. And I think that's going to be one of those things that helps. It's not going to be the thing. I think we have to fight through uh, what is some irrational behavior. But uh, I don't have the option to not do it. I think that's where, where we sit as an organization is um, we're not powering down on this. We're not, we're not going to back off the issue. And I think... Um, seeing any organizations that use, well, we're going to take a pause here 
and evaluate before we then keep rolling forward. Like that youth participation in sport is too important to then take a pause on allowing anyone to participate within it. If we believe that trans lives matter, that trans rights should be protected, we need to disentangle the conversation about participation in sports as a basic benefit, which all kids should enjoy, from the very narrow discussion of what the rules of participation should be for individual elite sports. As Kurt highlights, conflating the two means a critical mass of like-minded people are unable to come together in support of the very real and significant needs of young people. I think we are fighting through currently internally, the LGBTQ plus all, you know, uh, big tent that we live in uh, are not all coming out to to fervently back what is young trans athletes, especially. And I think that's where we're finding that many are, many are raising the hand, and I think more every day. But I think it's a challenge to say that um, everyone is in lockstep with how this should go. And I think this comes from a couple of different places. Uh, there are absolutely limits that should be put into place around who participates in sport in what category in what way there has to be there's eligibility rules for every sport i should not be playing second grade girls soccer right now there has to be some rules in place right so i think there's a there's a structure that has to be put into place elite levels and younger levels but certainly that structure is up for discussion as to who participates and it does get reviewed every year in every sport in every competition there is is it fit for purpose or not and I think that's where some people within our community and even what I'd say is the big middle of, of America that says, well, listen, I, I think that everyone should be able to participate in something. But I also think it's pretty reasonable to not allow for, again, a boy to throw on a wig and play a girl sport. And that's a very reasonable position for someone to have, which is I, I don't believe that sounds fair. Absolutely. So let's let's seed some of the crazy uh, instance that's given by the right in this kind of discussion to say, Yes, there absolutely should be some limits put into place, but then let's all get on the same page of, can we make sure that there's going to be safe and welcoming spaces for kids who are able to participate in sport? Can we also agree on that? And so if I, if I can give you this, can you give me this part of it? We have to go more down that road, which will then hopefully bring more people to the fight. Because I think right now there's a lot of people on the sideline waiting to see what happens before they will weigh into this kind of issue readily. Um, and I would give the example of uh, the political weight buying power and voice of the LGBTQ plus community in general, if put in full unison support of these issues, I have a hard time seeing the other side mobilizing anywhere near the that same level. And so I think that's where I think we, we can do a better job of that. And I think it's up to us to educate our own internal organizations and, and individuals and volunteers and, and stakeholders and, and groups, um, as well as then what we do work most of our time on, which is that I call that that big middle of straight participants in sport to say, listen, you're you're being fed some information that's inaccurate. Here's real information. Here's a real um, idea. And then, of course, proximity. Understanding who someone is goes a long way to wanting them to be part of what you're doing. And so that's, again, one of those things we have to do. So I think it's not been a – there's not an agreement. Um, at, unfortunately, agreement as to who should be allowed on an Olympic podium or not falls down into, well, now we don't know if we agree on any part of it. And that's, that's a, that is a lazy position to take. I don't know if someone should be allowed to participate in the Olympics at this level to do this and that, if they had this testosterone level, is then allowed to say, well, that means I don't have to get involved in the high school athletic association challenges that are happening down the street for me. That's an irrational position to take. Kids are being harmed. Some decisions have to be made. Absolutely. Two very different things, and we have to treat them that way. And I think that's where I, I'm a little let down sometimes when I see 
the lack of advocacy here where it's, listen, this is not the same discussion to have. We have to draw the line to say, kids participate, we want all here. Let's still talk about that. Let's go through the data. Let's find out what's going to be data-based. Let's find out what the information is telling us and let's see how some policies administrate themselves. As I said in the prologue to this season, I've never been a competitive athlete. I can't pretend to know or fully understand all the emotional aspects of playing sports, so perhaps I'm missing something here. But I am a parent who loves both my children, and I want to see them succeed in everything that they do. Still, I would never, ever advocate for the victory of my children in any academic or extracurricular activity if it comes at the expense of a trans child's inclusion. This doesn't mean I throw fairness in competition out the window, but it does mean that blanket bans on trans participation are unacceptable to me. It means I refuse to entertain alarmist narratives about girls being pushed out of sports by boys pretending to be female to gain the upper hand. It means I will think critically about and investigate the province of data about trans athletes used to support any policies or legislation, and I certainly will not share them without verification. I will continue to argue, without worrying about the implications for professional or Olympic sports, for the maximum inclusion of trans youth in interscholastic sports, because these are debates with very different implications. The next and final episode of this season, we'll talk about what's next. With legal challenges ongoing and federal regulations still uncertain, how do we move forward with this issue? How do we fight misinformation and selective interpretations and applications of science and history? Where do experts see things heading? What role do we as individuals play in how it plays out? Hearsay from the Sidelines is a collaboration of Seton Hall Law School and Culture and Sports. All research and writing by Sarah Grass, music by Supernova, Produced by Sarah Grass and Dr. Jeremy Piasecki, Executive Director of Culture and Sports. Links to all available academic and primary legal sources, media, music, transcription, and other materials mentioned in this episode are available on the Hearsay from the Sidelines show page, hearsayfromthesidelines.com. And if you like this show, check out cultureandsports.com where you'll find more articles, shows, webinars, summits, and courses for sports leaders of all levels.